0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, I am now the senior pastor at Livingston, but once upon a time I was the pastor here. So some of you know me really well, but I've met some new people today. I've met some people I know from Kalgoorlie and people I know from Carmel and different places, which is really cool. And it's good to meet new friends as well. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, we've been having a good time at Livingston, but like you, we're going together program. And we got really enthused about, you know, mentoring our young people and having stronger relationships in the church and using that as a basis for outreach. And then, unfortunately, at the moment, we can't do much because of COVID. (laughs) Because people are like, ooh, we shouldn't, you know, eat together too much or gather in large groups or whatever. We even shut church for a while. So church is still open, but it's frustrating times, isn't it? Anyway, we're trying to do a bit of Zoom stuff. We think, well, at least, you know. We can do that. But anyway, hopefully as the year goes on, we'll be able to do more ministry and it's good to be with you guys. And yeah, hope, hope you're doing good ministry for the Lord as well. So yes, I'm not going to tell you whether to vote for ScoMo or Elbow. <laughs> That's your own decision. Uh, but I did want to talk about Christians and the government. It's an interesting topic And not just because we've got an election coming up where there could be potentially a change of government, who knows, or a hung parliament or what have you, but it's interesting to think about, you know, how does this relate to us? And uh, I, of course, grew up in Canberra, and when you grow up in a place, you think it's a great place. And it was a good place to grow up, a little bit nippy in the winter, but everybody else in Australia goes, oh, that place! Can any good thing come out of Canberra? Be like Nazareth, because that's where all the politicians are. And by and large, Aussies usually aren't big fans of politicians. And so, yeah, often when I say I'm from Canberra, I get an interesting reaction. And it's interesting to think, well, why are we anti-politicians? You know, what what is that? And some of it's because, well, we started off as uh, a lot of us, you know, from convicts, and I guess convicts are a little bit anti-authority. Even the people who came out here as settlers were pretty much, you know, quite fiercely independent people and didn't necessarily want to be told what to do. So I think that's part of the issue. I think also some of the things that have happened in recent times, you know, in the last 50 years or so have not helped people's confidence in politics. Uh, The man on the left there is President Richard Nixon, uh, who had to resign before he was impeached in the early 70s. Uh, He decided that it was a good campaign tactic to break into the opposing party's campaign headquarters, and uh, when the people that did that break into the Watergate Hotel got caught, they eventually figured out, after a lot of denials and cover-ups and threats, that he was in on it, and so he had to resign. And uh, that is him as he's leaving the White House, you know, he's not hanging his head in shame, he's (laughs) giving the... The the uh, victory sign as he gets on his helicopter before he goes, so that matters. And I also think within the Australian context that that guy on the right and uh, the government he ran and the way it ended also really shook up people's views of politics. That was Gough Whitlam. He was prime minister from 1972 to 1975, and he brought in an amazing amount of social reforms. Did some quite significant things. Uh, but on the other hand he ran quite a chaotic government a lot of his ministers did crazy things and had to resign and different things were happening and there were scandals and in the end uh, there was a deadlock in parliament and he was sacked the only time the governor general's ever sacked the prime minister and called an election on 11th of November 1975 and so that sort of you know shook up people's view of politics and then the fact that the Malcolm Fraser and the coalition were in on that whole process also disillusioned a lot of people on the other side of things. And so that whole event really affected Australians' view of politics to this day, I believe. Of course, the old uh, question time is not really, you know, people often say, oh, you're acting worse than school kids. They yell and rant at each other and call each other names and what have you. Uh, You know, some people say it's part of the theatre of politics. For a lot of people, they're like, ah. Now, of course, interestingly, they spend a lot of other time in Parliament doing other stuff, but they don't put that other stuff on the news normally because it's boring. (laughs) They only put the exciting stuff on the news. So usually when we see our politicians on the news, if it's in Parliament, they're in full flight, you know, pointing fingers and calling names and ranting and raving and interrupting each other, sometimes getting ejected from the chamber. Another thing that's happened is we went through a period of a fair bit of stability and then we went through a period of instability in Australia. So between 1972 and 2007, a period of 35 years, we had five prime ministers and some of them were prime ministers for quite a long time. Uh, Malcolm Fraser, eight years. Hawke was uh, eight years and then John Howard, 11 years. So a long time, some of these guys. And then we went through this revolving door period where we had five prime ministers in 11 years. Uh, And that was pretty chaotic, you know? You'd say to your your kids at primary school, who's a prime minister? And they're like, I can't remember. It keeps changing. (laughs) And so that, and in fact, uh, Kevin Rudd had a brief, he had sort of two goes. So I guess you could say in a way there were six prime ministers within 11 years. And so Scott Morrison is the first one Next week, since two thousand and seven, to have gone a full term and like run through two elections since two thousand and seven—how crazy is that? Because things, you, people just keep getting sacked and replaced, and sacked and replaced, and something went on, and so that hasn't helped our view of politics. I don't either. I don't think at the moment. And it's interesting—the uh, the polling. The two major parties have historically some of the lowest primary votes at the moment in like. 100 and whatever it is, years, 120 years, 121 years since federation, So, which is a bit of a worry. You think, man, you know, the, the our historic system of the two-party system, which has brought stability, it's sort of falling apart. A lot of people are voting for other, uh, other people because they're not happy. So there's a lot of instability. Nonetheless, in amongst all this, there are some things that, uh, that it says, and so on the, on the, the first hand, it, it talks about there's times when you've got to honour the government, and then there's times when you need to resist the authorities. And we hear both from Christians, and I want to have, look at both things and say, well, what does that mean? And then I want to look at some modern day examples of things that are happening in the political arena that affect uh, Christians and, and churches and, and Christian organisations, So, as we heard in that fantastic cartoon, Romans 13, Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So he's going, you know, God wants there to be government. That's a good thing. He says, Whoever rebels against the authorities rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Most of the time, I'm not afraid of getting a speeding ticket because I don't normally go that fast. In fact, I annoy my family and not go fast enough at times, and they tell me to hurry up. So I'm not in fear because I'm not going over the limit. But there are other times where you think, oh, I'm not doing the right thing here. If I get caught, I could be in trouble. And maybe you have that experience. My uh, my father was one who thought the speed limits were far too low and felt that, you know, he should have the right to uh, drive at a much faster speed most of the time. And uh, sometimes that was thrilling and sometimes that was uh, terrifying. (laughs) But anyway, there you go. The one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So justice, you know, God needs a system of justice. We need laws so society can run. And so it's for our good, says Paul. Uh, Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So he's going, well, hopefully you think this is a good thing, you know? Like, I actually think wearing a seatbelt is a good thing. Like, if they changed the law and said it's optional now, I would swear it, you know, because it does save your life. Um, if you were uh, Rich Mullins, the famous Christian songwriter who wrote Our God is an Awesome God, or if you were Princess Diana uh, of, of Her Royal Highness of England, if you'd been wearing a seatbelt when you had your car accident, you might have survived, both those people were not wearing a seatbelt when they had major car accidents and they both died. You think, oh man, wear your seatbelt. Like it's a good idea. So some things we might buckle against as laws where we think, ah, oh, that's a pit of pain. If that wasn't the law, I'd do the opposite. Other times we think, man, this is a good idea to obey this law. It's a good thing, a matter of conscience. This is all why also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing so there you go, that's a bit of a nasty verse for those of you who trying to avoid paying tax. It's like, well, you might sometimes disagree with how much you have to pay, but taxation is a godly thing at its base, says Paul. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And so he's talking about the basic principle, you know, we shouldn't be, again, the government in broad terms. We should respect and honor the idea of law and governance and justice. Now, this is an interesting one. This is First Peter, a similar principle about, to Romans 13. And he says, hey, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So again, you know, these are set up for the idea of justice and and uh, reward and punishment. It's by God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show re- proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honour the emperor. And th- th- this really brings out the interesting... Uh, context that they were under because it's one thing to honor an elected government uh, and the chief ruler the prime minister in our case is a citizen of our country okay so you think well you know at least he's one of us or she in some cases in this instance uh the the Jewish Christians were living under an occupied Uh, So, you know, if some other country came and invaded us and took over, it would be a little bit trickier to honour the authorities, wouldn't it? Because you think, well, they invaded us. And and they, uh, you know, exacting a certain amount of cash out of us for their purposes. Uh, And so that would be hard. But even the Gentile Christians also had some issues about uh, honouring the emperor because they were asked to sacrifice incense to the emperor and worship the emperor as a god. This was a, a system the Romans developed to encourage, uh, you know, loyalty, the ultimate political loyalty, I guess. If you think the emperor is the god, then you show him due respect. And the Jewish people and Jewish Christians were exempt from this. The Romans realized through, you know, a lot of hard lessons that the Jews were not going to do that. And so they gave them an exemption. But Gentile Christians, they said, no, 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 you guys aren't Jews, you need to do this. And there was pretty severe social and in some cases physical consequences if you didn't do it. So it was tough being a Christian in those early years, right up till the early 300s where the empire became Christian. There was persecution that would happen from time to time, sometimes quite severe. The interesting thing is, that's a, a, uh, a statue of the Emperor Nero, and Nero was one of the first emperors to uh, persecute the Christians on a bigger scale. It was sort of a bit. There was a lot of social persecution, but he actually, you know, physically persecuted the Christians after the Great Fire of Rome. And Peter was, we think, was writing at the time when Nero was the emperor. So here's this guy persecuting Christians, and Peter is saying to his readers, "Hey, hey, you need to honour the emperor." So that's a bit of a tough, tough call. What's going on there? Well, I think. Overall, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be happy about the policy or the practices or even the character of your officials from time to time. I must admit, even though there's been uh, times when I haven't always admired our Prime Minister over the years, usually I thought they are at least half decent person, um, whereas, you know you could argue that President Trump did some good things, but on a character level, he was a bit of a rat, by all reports. (laughs) It'd be hard to honour President Trump if you're an American citizen at the time on a character level because he had some major drawbacks. So it's not necessarily saying you've got to always, you know, applaud what the government's doing, but it's saying, hey, government and government decisions may vary in quality, but law and order is a good thing overall, and it's to be respected. That's what Paul's saying, you know, fundamentally, governance is a good thing and we need to do our very best to honour and respect it. On the other hand, there are times when we have to resist the government, it says. And one of the classic ones, which we were looking at in the Holy Huddle this morning, thank you Holy Huddle people, is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been arrested after healing the crippled man The authorities are not happy that they're preaching the resurrection of the dead and Jesus is the Messiah. And so the council calls them in and says, hey, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. Stop doing this or else. And Peter and John say, hey, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Or some translations say, we can't help it. You know, it's just so good. It's so true. We just have to tell. We are going to disobey you as the governing authorities on this point. This is a case for resistance or rebellion. Uh, a bit later on, they say, Hey, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. This is what the high priest himself is saying. Instead, you've filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. And Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. You know, in the old King James, obey God rather than men. We must obey God. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. So this involved, you know, I think on this occasion they got flogged for this before they were released. So you know, it was a high price in, in uh, defying these authorities. But this was a case where they were called obey God rather than men and resist the government. And of course, uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, uh, we would often think about, you know, Revelation, Revelation 13, the beastly powers and resisting the mark of the beast. Now, I'm not going to go into a big Bible study today about what all that signifies, either historically or presently or possibly in the future. But uh, needless to say, you know, within Daniel and Revelation, in broad terms, the beasts represent different political, religious, political, religious powers that uh, are against God and God's kingdom and God's people. And uh, picturing uh, in the end times, it talks about the beasts given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All the inhabitants of earth will worship the beast instead of God, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And it says the, the second beast deceived the inhabitants of the earth It order them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So alluding to the story which Kaylee mentioned this morning of, you know, the, the, the call in Daniel 3 there to worship this giant statue or else go into the fiery furnace. So alluding to that, it's like... False worship, or else there will be a severe uh, consequence. The second beast is given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that all, so the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed, the threat of death. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, again, I'm not going to sort of speculate today about what that exactly means uh, but you in, in, you know the vibe in big terms it's like false worship the threat of uh, of death unless you follow this worship now regardless of what this might have meant you know in the middle ages or uh, today it had a direct application back then um, because with this system of emperor worship uh, which was backed by force, you know, so there was the, you know, the state and the, the religion of emperor worship working together against the Christians to pressure them into false worship at that very time with the threat of persecution. So the Mark of the Beast had a direct uh, application back then. And then Christians have seen that the slide into medieval Catholic theology and practice and the persecution, the Inquisition that followed, they've applied it to that, and Adventists have also said, yeah, well, we apply this to the entire uh, worship war. And the pioneer Adventists said, well, we think this is going to be something about the idea of against the Sabbath, against God's law, because it talks about the beast attacking God's law, and the idea of enforcing a Sunday law. And so, you know, this is our sort of uh, different ways this has been applied down through through the ages. But... The interesting thing is, of course, when you talk about revelation, it's not just the beasts, it also talks about God's response, which is the three angels' messages. And the three angels' messages, in response, say, Hey, don't resist. You know, resist all this. Resist the beastly powers. Don't worship the world or false religion or or, uh, politics going wrong. You know, give your first. alliance to god don't get the mark of the beast instead worship him at god as the creator uh, so the interesting thing about all this is when we talk about christians and the government like on the one hand we're going there are times when christians are recalled to resist the government on the other hand our adventist take on this makes us i think a bit suspicious of government full stop okay it's just something that sort of goes into the adventist psyche Because we teach about the beast as being coercive, religious and secular powers, it makes us a bit suspicious of the government, pessimistic about the government helping the... and highly resistant to any sort of government coercion. So as soon as the government starts mandating certain things, some of them start getting nervous, going, Oh, government control, what's going on? Is this the mark of the beast? Nonetheless, when we look at it as a sort of broad terms thing, when are we called to resist the government? Well, I would argue when a law clearly con- contradicts one of our fundamental beliefs, you know, that, 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 or a, a, a fundamental Christian teaching. Because in recent times, when the government has mandated certain things, which I'll get onto later in my address, people have gone, oh, the government is coercing people to do certain things, is this the mark of the beast? And I'm going, well, hang on. Are they specifically going against our core Christian practices? Probably not. And so we need to be a little careful when we resist the government and go, okay, is this a religious issue or this is another issue? Now, you as a private citizen may still be unhappy with the government mandating certain things or bringing in certain laws, But you've got to be a little bit careful about saying, is it a spiritual issue? And is it an issue that you think is a spiritual issue or everybody thinks is a spiritual issue? So this is the issue. Now let me move on to something else. uh, Because I want to talk today about the whole issue of religious freedom and and the government and how that works. Now interestingly, by way of background, uh, we don't have what's called a Bill of Rights in Australia. Okay? So, in the American system of law and certain other countries, they have enshrined within their constitution and or their legislation certain rights. And Australia has not gone that way for various reasons. But there are bits and pieces that talk about rights. And interestingly, the fact that we have a section in our Australian constitution on religious freedom is directly because of the actions of Stem Venice. So How about that? Uh, section 116. The, uh, when uh, Seven Venice arrived here in Australia in 1885, and it was during that period from the 1880s and 1890s when they were moving towards the Federation of Australia, which happened on the 1st of January 1901, these were the times when the, it was discussed what sort of country would we have, what sort of system of governments would we have, and what sort of constitution would we have. And interestingly, Uh, because it was quite a religious society at that time, uh, people were saying, hey, there should be an acknowledgement of Almighty God in the Constitution. And the Adventists, smaller number though they were, started jacking up about this and saying, hey, we, we advocate separation of religion and state. We think that, you know, if you start acknowledging God in the Constitution, this could lay the ground for religious laws and they were worried about you know, this being the foundation for laws about Sunday. And it makes sense because it was an issue at the time. In 1894, there were some Adventists in Sydney called the Firth Brothers and they were prosecuted for working on a Sunday. So they go, we're Adventists and we're going to you know, work on a Sunday because we don't believe Sunday is a holy day. And they were prosecuted. And there was another man about the same time, Mr. Robert Shannon, He was prosecuted for working on a Sunday and he got the choice, you could either pay a fine or spend time in the stocks because that was the law that was still in the statutes and the magistrate was quite relieved that he chose the fine because they didn't have any stocks around. (laughs) It was an outdated law so really he should have chosen the stocks, he would have got off with nothing but he chose the fine. Uh, so this was an issue. You know, There were Sunday laws at the time and Adventists were being prosecuted for, uh, for going against them. The Adventists were small in number. There was only 2,000 out of a population at the time of 3.6 million. We were led by an American, a man named A.G. Daniels, who uh, soon after became the president of the General Conference. And interestingly, Adventists influenced the framing of the Constitution of Australia. They agitated on this issue. And because of that, this... Uh, Section 116 is in the Constitution. And this is about the only thing, really, other than one other thing I'm going to show you. There's only two pieces of legislation that really guarantee religious freedom. Uh, The the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion, and no religious test shall be required as the qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. So there you go. We're responsible for that. They, the other churches did manage to get the acknowledgement of Almighty God in. They, we sort of had to compromise on that one. But because of this, the Adventists were happy. Uh, funnily enough, there was some concern about this. And some of the other people were saying, oh, this provision might allow people such as Seventh-day Adventists to indulge in extraordinary practices so that we may have all the theatres and all the music halls in Australia open on Sunday. Now, the irony is in this, if you know anything about Seventh-day they don't usually run theatres and music halls, particularly in 1901. <laughs> that was not what they were into back then, and a lot of them aren't right now. So these people didn't know Adventists very well. They're like, oh, these Adventists will open all the music halls on Sunday. It'd be terrible. So, but, so there were concerns, but those ones weren't very grounded. Now, back in, in 1984, there was a second step in this whole Uh, situation until we get to 2022. In 1984, uh, and it was uh, the Labor government, the Hawke government brought this in, they brought in the Sexual Discrimination Act, where they said, you know, by and large, you can't discriminate on the grounds of gender. But they did say there was an exception. They said, hey, religious schools can discriminate against another person, a staff or student, on the grounds of the other person's sex, as in gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status, or pregnancy. So they're sort of going, well, for religious schools, like in a, you know, if they want to have a chaplain, a Catholic school, only in the Catholic church, only males can be, you know, priests, so they're allowed to discriminate on that basis. Uh, if, if, if they don't want to hire gay teachers, they should be allowed to do that. So this was brought in in 1984, and that's the way things have stood. Um, And yet, the feeling has come up in the last few years that religious freedom is still an issue. For example, in Victoria, the government there has been trying to bring in laws where they say a religious school can only discriminate in hiring staff in areas directly related to religion. So if you're hiring a maths teacher uh, and you have someone who's a Seventh day Adventist and someone who's an atheist and this person's an atheist and they're gay, you can't discriminate between those people, okay? And and religious organisations have been saying, well, hang on, um, it's not just immediately what they're teaching is the whole ethos of our school, you know, it's not just the immediate curriculum that's an issue here and we sort of feel that we should be able to discriminate. And so the uh, Morrison government has tried to bring in the Religious Discrimination Act earlier this year. Now that is Michael Worker, who's the General Secretary of the SDA Church in Australia. He's there with Anthony Albanese, so there you go. So, I don't know how good mates they are. They're in their photo together, at least. I guess if Alwea gets elected, maybe Michael will have a friend in the court of Pharaoh. Who knows? But anyway, but uh, Michael, uh, he gave uh, a submission to a parliamentary select committee in January of this year. And this is what he said. I think it goes to the desire to ensure that a faith-based organisation, whether it's through education, healthcare, or aged care, has the right to preference the employment of people who are of our faith. As we all know, values are more often caught than taught. Ensuring that those protections are in place is important so that we can recruit people who will be able to not just deliver the curriculum with excellence, but also model values and beliefs in teachings in their interactions with students and with their families. And the Senator says to him, Senator Janet Rice says, hey, so you wouldn't employ somebody who was in a same-sex marriage or same-sex relationship then? And Pastor Worker says, no, that will be contrary to our beliefs. And this particular interaction between Senator Rice and Pastor Worker really showed why the whole Religious Discrimination Act ultimately failed. Uh, It was introduced into Parliament, and uh, it was in the dying days before Parliament was going to lift for the election, but things did not go well. You had people like the homos against scomo, because the whole issue of trying to balance the rights of gay people versus balancing the rights of religious organisations got more and more convoluted. And these are five parliamentarians uh, on the right-hand side who crossed the floor, they were members of the coalition government, uh, liberal or national MPs, and they crossed the floor against Scott Morrison, the government, to vote against things that were happening. They actually... Because what was happening was, in the process of debating the religious discrimination bill, the uh, Labor Party started proposing, well, we should amend the Sexual Discrimination Act, the part that I showed you before. We should, you know, get rid of that. Uh, and these guys said, yeah, we agree, even though the government had said, no, 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 you know, vote with us. And so they crossed the floor and were voting with the opposition to, to do all this, and the whole thing was just going pear-shaped, and in the end, the government withdrew the whole legislation and the whole thing fell over. And it just shows the difficulty of when you have conflicting views and conflicting rights. And, of course... It's not just a simple process of going, well, you've got the religious people on this side and the atheists on the other. Because there are some Christian people who have different views than the average Adventist on on, uh, homosexuality and some of these issues. And so it just got very, very convoluted, and it's a very, very difficult issue. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens from here on in. You know, whether someone can sort of cut the Gordian knot or, you know, solve this dilemma... Because religious organisations do need more protection in law, but they haven't figured out a way to do it that's acceptable to the wider city, and it is a challenge. Here's another one. This is a uh, just down the road from where we're currently living in, in Southern River. Uh, this is a building site that has been graffitied. And I just took a picture of that. It's opposite Bunnings there in Southern River. And you'll notice p- the person has written... Plandemic, Scandemic. And on the corner, they've written, Plandemic, Scandemic, COVID was a lie. I'm like, ooh. (laughs) So this is someone who's wanting to make a political statement to the uh, gentle citizens of Southern River and surrounding areas. Interesting. So we've had the whole thing about the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Now, this issue is probably going to subside, I mean, who knows, I don't have a crystal ball, but it's probably going to subside in the next, you know, 12 months or so, because the COVID vaccines are only useful for about six to nine months, and then they sort of wear off. So unless the government keeps giving us boosters every six months, sooner or later, the idea of a vaccine band-aid is going to be redundant. But nonetheless... We've gone through a, a situation in the last couple of years where if to work in certain industries, you had to be vaccinated. You know, it was a condition of employment. It was a condition, you know, you couldn't go to places, cafes, gyms and what have you, unless you were vaccinated. In New Zealand, it even got to the point where you couldn't attend church unless you were vaccinated. And so this has raised an interesting issue. Like, you know, the government is sort of putting this upon its citizens. How do we relate to that as Christians? Now, interestingly, the General Conference of Seventh-day Venice said, we support COVID vaccines. Why is this? Well, you might not realize it being here in little old Perth, which is a bit out of the way, but we run a massive hospital system as the Adventist Church will Ride. Like, we're the second biggest hospital, private hospital system behind the Catholic Church in the world. So we have one in Sydney, but you know we've got one in Bangkok, and we have one in Singapore, and there's, in Florida, they run something like 40 hospitals, and the main Florida hospital is you know bigger than Ben Hur. On the west coast, we have the Loma Linda University Medical Centre, which is basically a massive university built around a massive hospital. So we have a lot of hospitals around the world. And when the General Conference said to all of our medical people, what do you think, the majority of them said, we think COVID vaccines are a good thing. So therefore, the General Conference, our, our worldwide organisation said, we support COVID vaccines. And they also said, well, we're not opposed to government health mandates because we think, you know, in times where there's pandemics and, and plagues and things, need vaccines. However, they, they did say, we realise individual members might not do that and we think they should be able to seek exemption based on conscience, Now, that was probably a lot easier to do in some other countries that didn't have the sort of laws that we did. It was very difficult in Australia to get an exemption to be vaccinated based on conscience. But that was the general conference position. And of course, this has had a mixed reaction amongst the members. I don't know how many of you here feel about this, but there are certain people that would say, hey, COVID vaccines are really, really helpful. And other people say, "Oh no, no, it's really bad. It's something sinister, you know, the government or they're up to no good at, with this." Uh, either way, I would say I don't think the COVID nineteen vaccine is the mark of the beast. It's not, you know, something directly uh, re- a directly religious issue. Uh, but interestingly, it does show how the whole mark of the beast issue could come about in a crisis, you know. Because uh, often we talk about in Western society about how we have liberal issues and we have human rights. But when there's a crisis, even Western governments are happy to suspend that for the sake of trying to sort out the issue. And another one happened in uh, 2001. So the US has always been the champion of human rights. But after the 9-11 terrorist bombings, they said, oh, we're so worried about terrorists that we will scoop up people who we think are terrorists and put them in Guantanamo Bay and suspend their human rights. So they have no right to trial. They have no, you know, we'll just sort of put them there and they'll rot there for years. And some of them have literally been there for 20 years. They're gradually letting them out, but it's taken a very, very long time. So there are times when the government goes, oh, we're really worried about this. We're going to suspend normal operating procedures. And uh, even though I myself, you know, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone here, but, you know, I myself am a fan of COVID vaccines and I was happy to be vaccinated and I think the government had good motives for wanting as many people to be vaccinated as possible. Nonetheless, you sort of go, well, you can see how that sort of mechanism where the government can mandate things and maybe one day times will come when they'll mandate things that we're not quite so happy about. We need to be prepared for that. But I guess just stepping back from that particular issue... We need to say, how do we stay together when there are conflicting views of a government law? We have had churches in this state where certain church members say, I'm opposed to wearing masks, I'm not going to wear one at church, when that was the law. And then we've had other people say, well, we think we should follow the law, so you should be wearing one. We've had other people go, well, I think we should follow the law because I think it's a good thing to wear a mask and you should be wearing one. What do we do with that? You no. Know? These are not easy issues when people have different convictions on some of these issues and different feelings about what the government is doing. And so we need to try and figure out how do we stay together because it's very easy to sort of get in our own individual corner or get in our own soapbox and say, well, I think this and everyone should respect that instead of going, how do we function as a group? How do we hold it all together and how do we stay together? Christians and the government. Ultimately, the scriptures call us to honour the emperor, even if we don't like the emperor. (laughs) Try as much as possible to be law-abiding citizens and uphold society and the government. There are times, though, where we have to obey God rather than men, even if there's a cost. And so I guess at the end of the day, Jesus' wisdom is the best. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. God bless you as you uh, navigate these issues. And please have compassion for our leaders at a state and a national and an international level as they navigate these issues and pray for them because it's not easy interacting with government, interacting with church members of conflicting opinions and trying to keep together. So let's pray that we can remain a united yet diverse Adventist family. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we live in the country that we do. There are times when we think things will be so much better, but we're grateful that things are not so much worse. And Lord, guide us as we make decisions day to day, both individually, as groups of people, our our national church, the different institutions that we run as we grapple with these issues. Help us to be kind and compassionate and yet biblical people living in the world we're in so we may shine our light for you. In Jesus' name, amen.